I've really felt <coughs> that it's been an honor to be part of your process for those of you that I've connected with. It's really very touching and deeply inspiring to share the special ex process of opening, to be part of it. Not so common. Often when we're in the middle of it, or even at the end, it doesn't always, what do I want to say? We don't always see the reflection of how beautiful a process it is that we're involved in here. And so, as someone who can help reflect back to you, I want to reflect back to you what a deeply touching experience it has been for me to be part of the opening and to share it with you. It really felt very beautiful to me. Thank you. So what I want to say is in honor of the opening and the process that we've experienced all together as a community. <clears throat> and to make a dedication and prayer that all beings everywhere have the same opportunities as we've experienced here these last eight days. To come to touch themselves. It's not a separate event, this retreat. And isn't that wonderful? It would be very weird if it was just a separate event, totally unrelated to everything else in our life. But it's not. I've talked a lot when I've talked about opening to that place of understanding and intuition that we call our Buddha nature. We've talked about opening into that unity of being, the ground of being, of awareness and non-duality. The dynamic that makes this possible, 
the dynamic that connects this retreat with the rest of our lives is the dynamic, the universal dynamic called karma. Karma is one of the most beautiful blessings that we experience. Think of how totally chaotic and incomprehensible this world would be if there was no relationship between cause and effect. But there is. There are relationships between cause and effect. We can put the kettle on the stove and turn on the stove and the kettle gets hot. It would be very weird if sometimes it didn't. It would be very strange if we ate food and weren't able to absorb it. It's really quite, quite wonderful that this universe and life expresses itself in a dynamic that is comprehensible and that is ordered in some way. That is, that really it is meaningful. Karma is about this meaning. Like gravitation and the law of gravity, it is not about good and bad, but an expression of this particular universe. Gravitational pull happens to every object, to all matter in this universe. All matter in this universe experiences the law of karma as well. Karma is about action and result, particularly intentional action and result through speech, through body, and through mind. These actions leave an imprint on our process, on our mind process, which then, when met with particular conditions, affect our experiences. How wonderful that actually what we do has an effect that we will experience the repercussions of our actions, our intentional actions. It's not like religions in which there is a God that makes a judgment of good and bad, of righteousness and evil from above. It is really about our empowerment and the fact that we can control, we can nurture ourselves, our lives, our relationships, the societies we live in, in such a way as to create happiness for ourselves 
or suffering for ourselves. It's not a direct and linear relationship, although sometimes we directly experience the consequences of our actions. The Buddha said, according to the seed that is sown, so is the fruit that you reap. The doer of good will gather good results. The doer of evil reaps evil results. If you plant a good seed well, then you will enjoy the good fruits. And in the Dhammapada, whether it was good or bad, the power of any action once performed is never lost. The results arise accordingly. Good here in the sense means what will bring us happiness and others happiness. Evil in the sense means what will bring about suffering. It's also about small is beautiful. It's not about the big things only, but about all things. All things, all actions, all thoughts, all speech actually brings about some kind of result. What a gift we're given. The gift demands unquestioningly that therefore we have to take responsibility. For if we are creating all the time, then we ask ourselves, what are we creating? What are we creating? What kind of lives are we living? Often we can't see the results of our actions. Often they're obscured. Often we're caught in the middle of storms. And so the Buddha gave us the precepts as a way to help guide us, as a way to help us envision how to live our lives in such a way that we can continue to nurture the ground and sow the seeds for our happiness. He said, here is the law that operates. Here's the possibility for opening to and reaching allowing ourselves to experience our full potential. Here is the law of karma. And now, here are some structures, here are some guidelines to help you in your visioning process of how this can come about. Some of that we've been talking about, contained in right understanding. We've been talking about the hindrances that might obscure this understanding from us. We've talked about self-doubt. We've talked about the three characteristics. We've talked a lot about mindfulness. And we've also talked about the precepts. 
in the Four Noble Truths, the Fourth Noble Truth is really about the vision, the guidelines for the visioning of this process of living calmer consciously, right understanding and right thought. We've talked about the meditation practice and how important mindfulness is. We haven't spent so much time talking about precepts or morality. And that's what I want to do tonight a little bit. I took a master's degree in organizational development. And one of the things that really grabbed me was strategic planning. Strategic planning was a process to help organizations become more effective. It was to plan for the future, kind of like organizational karma. And the most important part of it was the visioning part. It's been understood that unless you have a vision, how do you know where to go? How many of us have spent a lot of time thinking through what our vision is? How do we know where we're going without it? What are our guideposts along the way? It really hit me several months ago as I was talking to my friends. Well, I really haven't spent a lot of time reconnecting and really fleshing out a little bit what my vision is. It sort of seemed a little hodgepodge, a little bit from some of my early Marxist days, some from my feminist days, some from the, the Dharma, and sort of scattered. And there certainly was some sense, but it wasn't terribly coherent. And we talked about it as a group and decided we would do a visioning process with ourselves that we would spend a week really thinking through what our vision is for ourselves, our families, and our culture. It was really a wonderful process. It was a really wonderful process. And it definitely streamlined the energy. It helped clear and clarify my intentions and my actions and what I wanted to manifest. So those working in organizational development say, you have to have a vision to know where you're going to go. And you also have to have the means to get there. We have the means as well as the possibility to create a vision. Let's make use of it, especially as we leave this retreat. Let's take the opportunity to reconnect with ourselves and our visions of how we would really like to live our lives.
some of the guidelines the Buddha talked about were in the five precepts of non-harming, not stealing, freedom from creating harm through sexuality, right speech, and refraining from abusive intoxicants. Non-harming is about our relationship to ourselves and in our whole life and all life everywhere. It is saying harming does not bring about our happiness. Anything, harming anything, actually in some way or another will bring about some suffering. This means little life like ants and flies and mosquitoes, as well as people and trees, birds, the waters and the oceans. In a way, everything falls under non-harming. I remember on one of my first three-month retreats, I was sitting here and there were all these flies. It was really hot. It was right at the beginning of the retreat. And I was trying to sit and I was getting angrier and angrier with the flies. There were so many in my room and they were buzzing about and buzzing about and landing on me all the time and I couldn't concentrate. Mm -hmm. And I just couldn't concentrate. And I remember getting one of my flip-flops and smacking one of the flies against the wall. And it was as though I had an electric shock go through my body because I saw in the quietness that I was in the violence that I had just done to myself by killing this fly. I had had no idea of the impact that it would have on me to kill this life. It was such a wonderful experience to see it and feel it that clearly because it's really guided me in cultivating patience <laughs> with flies <laughs> and mosquitoes. <laughs> it really, if we check it out, if we really check it out, and what's going in our bodies, it's really quite, quite a um, disruptive experience to hurt something. We can talk about non-harming generally and then we can become a little more specific and there are countless ways we can become specific. What kind of food do we put in our bodies? Are we careful about honoring our bodies as life and about putting in healthy food? Are we careful about honoring the life that is called food? Do we support 
chicken farms that keep chickens in small cages, chickens that never see the sun or the ground, that are fed hormones so that they're producing eggs all the time, chickens that go crazy and peck each other to death? Are we buying our eggs from supermarkets that support these organizations? Are we eating meat that comes from farms that feed cows with so many hormones where the cows also aren't allowed to live their lives properly? What kind of culture do we want to support? Because the truth is that we actually have the power to create the kind of society that we want to live in. Maybe not totally, but certainly partially. Are we unconsciously supporting the harmful dynamics of racism, of homophobia, of sexism? Tremendous, tremendous harming goes on. You know, sometimes it's easy to separate our personal lives from our interpersonal lives. And sometimes it's easy to separate our interpersonal lives from our social lives. But each one of us living here lives our life personally. We live our life in relationship interpersonally. And we live our life socially. We live our life in society. And we create relationships on all three levels. Everything that happens in this culture happens because we're here. It's all connected. And so when we start to live our lives in accordance with non-harming, then we're asked to challenge these dynamics within ourselves. I know that in many ways living my life as a lesbian has been a tremendous blessing. It has brought me tremendous, tremendous joy. And also there's a lot of ways where it's quite painful. My relationship isn't acknowledged by the society, I can't get married. In most states of America, I have no civil rights, no laws that protect me from discrimination in employment, in housing, or in health, or in any other area of life. In some laws, in some states rather, it is against the law for me to love another woman and I'm imprisoned. Often I don't have custody of my children. 
And often I'm subject to quite a lot of violence. How much am I participating in perpetuating these relationships? It's not about guilt, because guilt says I'm powerless. It's about looking at how I create happiness for myself and for other beings and where I'm actually participating, albeit unknowingly, in maintaining harmful relationships in this society. Not stealing or not taking what is not given. Again, can I become conscious of the ways that I live my life and the choices I make? Do I sometimes drive my car alone when I could share it? Because I want that kind of independence when I know how sacred and special fuel is. We killed this jack said the other night, thousands and thousands of children to have the privilege to drive the amount we drive. How am I using public transportation? What is my relationship to energy? What is my relationship to water? When I wash my dishes, do I keep the water faucet on flowing while I wash and rinse? and still have it flowing while I pick up the next plate? Am I damming up the last of the wild rivers? Or can I create some happiness in my relationship with the natural resources of the earth? Am I taking the time and trouble to recycle plastic bags when it's so irritating to wash them? or putting brown paper bags in my car so then I, when I shop, I can take them in with me. Do I need to buy as many new things as I buy? Can I buy second-hand things instead? Second-hand clothes, second-hand computers, second-hand cars. Can I start to live my vision of an earth and her peoples in balance? Can I believe that I do make a difference? Can I really open to the law of karma? What about sexuality? That's a big one. Tremendous, tremendous amount of energy in this culture centers around sexuality. It is held 
as the place where we can reach our deepest happiness. It is the answer to all our problems if we believe the Hollywood movies. It is the drug that will take us to nirvana, sexuality. How are we relating to our sexuality? Are we really open to it as a sacred relationship? Are we really allowing ourselves to experience the erotic as a way to come to the beauty and emptiness of our being in relationship, either with ourselves or with our partners? Or are we using it as a drug? Are we objectifying it and using it as power over to meet our own needs? One woman is raped every minute of the day in this world. How are we relating to sexuality? Are we caught in the belief that we have fallen in love? That we are being controlled by a desire that makes us do what we're doing. I think out of all my experiences that are close to addiction, perhaps the one that has been strongest for me has been that of falling in love, where it really did feel at times as though it was totally out of my control that it was a process that was carrying me in tremendous desire. Is that true? Are we out of control? Do we in some ways deep down inside of us believe that falling in love and relationship is what will bring us our happiness? I know intellectually we know that it that it's not supposed to and won't, but really, <laughs> what do we believe? <laughs> and how are we acting around it? Our expectations of our partners, especially around sexuality, can bring about such deep pain. Are we aligning ourselves with karma and what really brings about happiness? Or are we aligning ourselves in some subtle ways with desire? Speech is another one. How much regret I have experienced around wrong speech. And regret is good. It's, a good, it's good to feel remorse for mistakes that we've made. It's inspiring. It, it helps us begin to rectify or maybe I should say, can help us to begin to rectify our mistakes. It is so easy to lose our alignment with karma and our vision of harmony and peace when we're talking. 
How many times do we get lost in blame, in thinking that the fault is the other person and that is why we're angry? And we start our conversations with you. You did this, you said that. I'm feeling lousy because you How often are we inspired by our vision of healing to start from an I place? To really come into relationship with all those forces and energies that are inside of us. To come into relationship with it and so to heal by starting from an I place. I am feeling, I think. This is what I need right now. I wanted to read the story called The Gossip. There was once in a small village a man who was a terrible gossip. He always had stories to tell about his neighbors. Even if he didn't know someone, he still had something to say about them. Well, the new year was coming and the man decided to make a fresh start. He went to the rabbi. Rabbi, he said, I feel bad about the gossip and the rumors I've spread. I really want to make amends. Please tell me what to do to atone. The rabbi thought for a minute and then he said, I'll tell you what you must do in order to put right the damage you've done, but you must follow my directions exactly. No questions, do you understand? I promise, Rabbi, I promise I'll do just what you say. Good, said the Rabbi. Now go to the market and buy a fresh chicken. Then bring it here to me as fast as you can. But mind, warned the Rabbi, that you pluck it absolutely clean. Not a single feather must remain. Well, the man could not imagine what the Rabbi wanted with the chicken. But he'd promised not to ask questions, so off he went as fast as his legs could carry him. He got to the market, purchased the best chicken he could find, and started running back to the rabbi's house, plucking off the feathers as he ran. Furiously, he plucked until he got to the rabbi's door. Not a single feather was left. Out of breath, the man handed the chicken over to the rabbi, who turned it over and over until he was satisfied. Then he turned to the man and said, Now bring me all the feathers. But Rabbi, gasped the man, how could I do such a thing? The wind must have carried those feathers so far. I could never find them all. That's true, said the Rabbi, and that's how it is with gossip. One rumor flies to many corners, and how could you retrieve? Better not to speak gossip in the first place. And he sent the man to apologize to his neighbors and to repent. (laughs) The Buddha said, speech needs to be useful and said at an appropriate time. It's kind of the bare guidelines. How about the guideline of not talking about someone unless they're present? I I was um, reminded by one of the staff members today 
that I had made that mistake the other night. And I really appreciated her coming up to me and saying that she had felt uncomfortable. It's really wonderful when we can support each other this way, you know, to say things that we know aren't quite supportive in bringing about harmony and to support each other to keep in alignment with this. Not saying negative things that are useless. Are we actually disempowering people by saying negative things about them when it's not really being helpful, it's not being useful? And finally, our relationship to intoxicants and drugs. Intoxicants cloud our minds. Sometimes being someone who really loves a good glass of wine, I used to weigh the pros and cons and say, "Mm, you know, I'm on vacation or this or that, I'll just have a little glass of wine. For me what happened is, as I started to drink less and less frequently, I started to feel what alcohol did to me and how irritable I would become afterwards. And I started to see, wow, it's really not worth it. It's not worth the taste. I can let it go. And now it's been such a blessing in my life. It really is, as I see people struggle with right relationship to mind-altering substances, to be free of having their influence on my mind. See for yourself what's right for you. Where Where really is the healing for you if you have an active relationship with mind-altering substances? What what is your healing? (laughs) One other thing the Buddha talks about quite a lot is dana and generosity and what a wonderful impact it has on our life. This evening after the concert, I saw these two prostitutes on the corner talking with this street crazy, this bag lady, and I actually stopped to watch them even though it had begun to rain. And I remembered something I think it was Kafka wrote about having been filled with a sense of endless, endless astonishment at simply seeing a group of people cheerfully assembled. I saw this young man go up, obviously from out of town, and he asked them, how do I get to Carnegie Hall? And the bag lady said, practice. <laughs> and we caught each other's eyes, the prostitutes, the bag lady, the young man, and I. We all burst out laughing. 
There we were laughing together in the pouring rain. And then the bag lady did the dearest thing. She offered me her umbrella hat. She said that I needed it more than she did because one side of my hair was beginning to shrink. <laughs> and Lonnie, I did the strangest thing. I took it. <laughs> Giving and receiving. There's such beauty in it. One of the major dynamics in creating this vision of healing and wholeness for ourselves. The mechanism that enables all this to take place, this healing, the seeing of course, is to be present, is to be mindful. It's why we're here on retreat. And that's the connection This retreat is not separate from what we do when we leave here. It's about it. It's about taking the time to bring about the process of being present so that we can begin to create our vision. We can begin to see more carefully those actions that bring about healing, happiness, and those actions that bring about suffering. This retreat is central to our lives and our hope for healing. We have to remember, to remember the sky that you were born under, know each of the star's stories, Remember the moon, know who she is. I met her in a bar in Iowa City. Remember the sun's birth at dawn, that is the strongest point of time. Remember sundown and the giving away tonight. Remember your birth, how your mother struggled to give you form and breath. You are evidence of her life and her mother's and hers. Remember your father, his hands cradling your mother's flesh and maybe her heart too, and maybe not. He is your life also. Remember the earth whose skin you are. Red earth, yellow earth, white earth, brown earth, black earth. We are earth. Remember the plants, trees, animal life, who all have their tribes, their families, their histories too. Talk to them, listen to them. They are alive poems. Remember the wind, remember her voice. She knows the origin of this universe. I heard her singing Kiowa war dance songs at the corner of 4th and Central once. Remember that you are all people and that all people are you. Remember that you are this universe and that this universe is you. Remember that all is in motion, is growing, is you. Remember that language comes from this. Remember the dance that language is, that life is. Remember to remember. Let us sit for a moment. 